You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Uprise Radio are produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Kulin Nation. We recognise that this is unceded, unceded and stolen land, and we would like to pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past, present and future. And we recognise that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Uprise Radio. It is the 2nd of June. We are back in lockdown. My name is Jackson. I'm here with James. How are you, James? I'm pretty good, Jackson. Who was that that we were just listening to? That was the Slingers, who are a backup band to Spike for Beep. Uh, I don't know if you know them, uh, but yeah, that's just a Melbourne kind of old country band. Mm-hmm. It sounds like. Um... The singer sounded a little bit like Chris Isaac and um, Bruce Springsteen had had a love child in the um, late 90s. I think they would be happy with that uh, comparison, yeah. yes. Hits galore. Hits galore. Um, yeah, no, no just, uh, I'm pretty good, Jackson. We are back in lockdown, um, you know, but we, we can remain positive. Sorry to cut you off there. No, that's fine. I mean, hopefully it's a short one. Um, the mm. amount of, you know, infections is uh, low, but the amount of exposure sites is concerning. Um, mm. So if it does continue, you know, with the lack of government support being announced, you know, maybe we could uh, look at some of the ongoing impacts that's going to have in, in a future episode as well. It's also a real shame because the next episode, you know, would be Radiothon and, you know, I know that you were hoping to host an event, you know, to raise some mm-hmm. money for Uprise Radio and, and 3CR. Um, and, of course, this is very unlikely to happen uh, in the current climate, um, which is, you know, going to be two years in a row, which is a huge struggle for, you know, a station like 3CR and all community organisations. Um, so just another thing um, to think about in the current context. Um, uh, but we will... Um... We will be bringing you a show that will have um, ways that you can donate. And, yes, I at this stage it seems difficult for us to be able to put on the kind of fundraiser we were hoping to. Maybe that's something we can do later in the year. But uh, we will. We will have some ways for people to engage and um, give us their money. So, yeah. But, you know, it is... Um, yeah, it's difficult for lots of people at the moment and, um, yeah, what can we do? We can't even go to the footy on the weekend, Jackson. We were hoping to go to the Dreamtime game. We were. And it's a lovely event. Uh, well, I went it. last week and I ended up in a Tier 2 exposure site, so maybe I should rethink mm. my social calendar. 
because I don't want to have to go through that again. Um, but we should get on to the topic at hand today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about respectful relations in schools. Um, we're going to be, we're lucky because we're going to be joined by two high school educators who've been uh, doing a lot of ongoing work with teenagers about respectful relations. And, you know, this has become a real hot button issue in many high schools. Um, you know, obviously a lot of young people have been inspired by the actions of Grace Tain, the Australian, Young Australian of the Year, Brittany Higgins, and the many, many others who've shared their stories via social media as part of the Me Too and March for Justice events. Um, and, you know, I think we saw you know, at a federal level, the kind of, you know, the shameful accusations levelled at Christian Porter and his fairly shameless response, along with the sexist bumbling, you know, from Scotty from marketing, has kind of highlighted the inadequacy, of, the inadequacy, I should say, of political leaders to change their own workplace cultures, let alone provide any, you know, leadership or, or justice to women or you know, anyone who's experienced sexual violence. And in a school's context, this failure was further accentuated by a fairly disastrous release of a set of videos from the federal government, videos and resources, you know, which was creepily called the Good Society. Uh, and for those who missed these videos, I just thought I'd play a short snippet of the infamous milkshake video. To cross into the action zone, both people must agree. Do you want to try my milkshake? Yes, I do. Is it better than yours? You know, I think I prefer mine. But what happens when one person takes action without an agreement? You do, huh? Well, drink it. Drink it all. What are you doing? Drink it all. This is what we call moving the line. When a person imposes their will on you, it's as if they were moving the yes line over the maybe zone or the end zone, ignoring your rich inner world and violating your individual freedoms and rights. And that's not good. I think what we would actually might call that is confusing the issue rather than moving the line. And, you know, I think it's yet again another attempt by the federal government to you know, from hotlines to websites to information videos, they seem incapable of creating something that should be quite simple in terms of teaching um, or utilising a resource. And, you know, it's it's a debacle that the government has really um, not only dropped the ball in producing, but has really given no, like, nothing since then to actually clarify how they're going to move forward with something that young people can actually engage with. Yeah, and it was a, a very large amount of money that went into creating this bank of resources as well. I think it was half of the whole budget, I think, which was a, a little over $10 million assigned to developing respectful relations curriculum went into making this website. And, you know, it's quite strange, you know, from a start, starting point that the video casts as the victim a young man and the perpetrator as a young woman. And, and even stranger, it later seems to be advising the victim to stay with his abuser if possible. And, you know, it was fairly rightly criticised, but we want to kind of delve past the, the criticism today and ask, firstly, what kids at high school maybe need uh, to lower the incidence of sexually inappropriate behaviour amongst high school students, but also what role schools are increasingly being asked to play in delivering justice to young people who feel violated by their peers or other people they know. 
So we're lucky this evening uh, to be joined in this discussion by Tim and Nicole, and I'll ask them to unmute themselves now and, and join us. Uh, both are teachers in a large uh, public high school in Melbourne. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Nicole, uh, you're the senior year's coordinator in charge of student wellbeing. Can you describe perhaps the increase in focus on and disclosures of disrespectful or sexually inappropriate behaviour this year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in response, like you said earlier, to things like Brittany Higgins, the March for Justice um, and the, the petition that went viral, um, I think it started in Sydney and then around Australia, a lot of students found their voice um, because of these things and they, they demanded more. They demanded more from schools in the area of consent education, um, but they also reached out for support. I think these topics, well, these actions opened up um, the topic of conversation for our students. It made them think and it, it educated them in what exactly um, sexual assault is and what it looks like. Um, and it broadened their perspective of that. And in response to that, they then came to us and they, they said a few things, one being you need to give us better education in this area, but the other being we need more support and we need to know what services are available. And currently we don't feel like there is enough support in this area. Well, that's that's awesome that they were saying that they needed, you know, more educative tools as well as more support. Like they themselves felt like there was, you know, a lacking in their capacity, which they felt you could you could fill. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the gaps that they recognise and, and what you guys have been developing to help them, I guess, deal with, with uh, these experiences? Yeah, so we at our school currently do have consent education, um, but we are very open to the fact that it needs to be updated um, and we probably need to go into a lot more depth as to what consent is from a younger age. Um, and that's not necessarily um, sexual consent, but I think from even in primary years, consent needs to be taught to children um, about what consent is and the power of the word no. Um, so our students have asked for more in-depth um, resources and curriculum around consent education and in the senior years, which is where I work um, specifically in sexual education and sexual consent. Um, so as a school, we are listening and we're overhauling what we are currently delivering um, and taking on board those students' perspective, perspective sorry, asking their advice, um, trying to develop resources and a curriculum that really tailors um, to their needs and make sure that we're delivering good curriculum that's going to educate our kids in such an important area. There was actually a walkout in Adelaide today. I don't know whether you guys saw this at a high school in Adelaide where a number of female students, you know, decided to walk out of cl class in, in protest about, I suppose, the way the school was dealing with disclosures. I wonder, in the context of your school, which is a school here in Melbourne, what do you think students are looking for in terms of a response from the school when they come to you and say, this is happening between peers, this is happening to people I come to school with every day? Uh, um, Tim, I know you're assistant principal and you look after student welfare. What, what do you think? You know, I imagine that a lot of students are not looking for their peers to be, you know, taken to the police or, or thrown in jail. What, what, what do you? What kind of justice do you think they're seeking? And is the school in a position to deliver that? Um, really, really good and relevant question. Obviously, I, I think I did see that that happened uh, today, and I wondered what that might look like um, in Victoria. I think what 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 students are wanting when they come forward and when they share uh, that these things have gone on, I think 
I don't, I don't I think it's really simplistic to say that they want justice I think that they want education I think that uh, they want to know what their rights are they want to know what supports they can get next uh, they want to know what this means for their story moving forward uh, but then equally they invariably in my experience they want the other side so to speak to to be educated and to know what to do moving forward um, overwhelmingly all of the things that that we have dealt with any students that have come forward to us um, they don't necessarily want to go to court or to the police even often. They want to know that people are being educated and they want to know uh, that they can be safe and that everybody else can be safe. I wonder, um, you know, Nicole or Tim, if you would be able to speak about, you know, how was recent funding? I know that, say, with um, since when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, there was funding moved away from kind of welfare departments in schools towards chaplains and, um, you know, and I guess that sort of not as targeted as it could be in terms of just looking at welfare for um, students. And, you know, where does that kind of sit at the moment? And I know that students may uh, come to teachers with information um, initially, but, you know, after those kind of discussions, that can become kind of a welfare role, kind of where someone who's a bit more specialised in um, counselling or social work might um, be able to better handle that kind of situation. Are you able to help, like, sort of, paint the picture of what that kind of looks like now and where that funding is? Yeah, um, you know, and to be perfectly frank, there's uh, never enough funding in this space. Uh, there's never enough training to people who work with young people. Um, you know, there's teachers or, or people who are uh, registered as, as teaching in this state are required by law to mandatory report uh, things that come to them that, you know, where they think that a child is at risk or there's significant harm. Um, of course, and that's because we're in the position where um, we might observe or um, you know, hear of things that are happening to young people. Um, we're in a good position to, to hear those things and observe those things, of course. Um, so in terms of funding, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago, perhaps five, six years ago, that funding was uh, taken away in government schools um, from support services, where support services had a complete uh, reconfiguration and um, you know they no longer do sort of outreach or case management for schools um, and their model is nowadays much more uh, trying to be preemptive and educative what that means in uh, in reality how, however is that schools are largely on their own uh, to deal with this to deal with educating staff to deal with educating students and importantly their parents um, there's a huge gap um, I would say in this space not you know in every sector government private whatever um, about educating parents and having the same dialogue um, with, with, with young people between home and with school. So long-winded answer, but you know, funding has changed in that um, a lot more onus has been put on schools currently uh, to manage these situations. Mm. Yeah, it's, sometimes it can be the forgotten element that you're not just dealing with students, but also their extended families and they would have very strong opinions on, on the matters at hand, I'm sure. I want to come back a little bit to what you were talking about before about, you know, it not necessarily being justice or that being a simplistic way of looking for what people disclosing information are seeking. I think that's a good point. But I also think there's a really, uh, you know, similar adjacent conversation happening happen at the moment around Black Lives Matter where, where you see, you know, people who have been wronged but not wanting to go down a, a legal or punitive path, you know, to, to find, you know, a sense of well-being or a sense of justice or a sense of what happens next after this experience. And I think teachers are in this really interesting position. You know, you do have real relationships with young people and you are in a position where you may 
understand the pressures that you know both parties in an instance are under and i feel like schools are a good place to imagine some of these other scenarios where people could feel you know a sense of closure or a sense of being able to move on i I wonder nicole you know having gone through this in a school context this year you know have you had any insight into how you know a terrible experience can become an educative moment for kids and something that's actually a launch pad you know, to growth or, or, or even, you know, making some young men in particular better future citizens, you know, better future partners, better future people to, to, to live with. Is that, is that something you can do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said before, it opened up a huge dialogue within our school around consent and, and sexual education and sexual assault. And we did see a lot of students coming forward and disclosing information to us. Um, but it also led to, as, as you alluded to, a lot of male students, I guess, becoming more aware of what was going on and um, actually coming to us and saying, what do, I, what do I do here? What do I need to do? And, and not that they necessarily done anything wrong. Um, But how do I be an ally? How do I call my mates out on poor behaviour? What does Mm. that look like? Can you provide support in this area? Um, Which was an incredible conversation to have with those students. And, you know, an area of education we certainly need to address is talking to those both male and female students about what behaviour is unacceptable and what language is unacceptable and how can they be an ally to victims rather than supporting this negative behaviour and how to call it out. So it really has been, I guess, one of the positives that's come from from these stories is these students coming forward and wanting to be better and wanting to learn from it and wanting to grow from it. Surely there would be some foot dragging though. Like I know even within my own peer groups, when people are challenged and asked to improve, you know, a lot of people's default reaction is to say, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, there's this, you've got the problem. I don't have the problem. And I, and I know you're charged with, you know, growing all of these kids, um, you know, how do you deal with with those kids that are perhaps more resistant to this discourse and, you know, feeling like they're being unfairly targeted or, or tarred with the same brush? Yeah, it, it's really challenging um, to have those conversations. And you're right, some of them are very willing to listen and make change and others um, are certainly on the other end where they say, well, it's not me. Um, and how am I, what am I supposed to do if it's my mate? Um, so it is, it's challenging and we need to, I guess, address all of those students and provide education to all of them. Um, and some of them, it's just going to take more time than others, but it is being consistent um, in the way that we teach. We bring everything back to respect. So having conversations around what respect looks like to them um, in their home and in, in their life and in their schooling as well. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we just have to have that conversation multiple times sometimes um, to start to get that message through. Um, but hearing it from their peers is far more powerful as well than hearing it from us. And so by starting with some groups of students who are then able to go and, I guess, pass on that communication and, and start to call their mates out um, and start to stand up for themselves or for their friends, that's where the, the real education is happening, I think. Um, hearing it from a teacher is not always what they want, um, especially senior students, but hearing it from their mates is far more powerful. I think the other thing with that is a school, places like schools can be very, very clear on what the expectations are in at school uh, and in, in school spaces. So we're able to, to say to students, this is what we stand for, here are our values. If you don't abide by these values or if you don't abide by these rules or if you uh, resist in these ways, then then there are consequences for that. Um, so we can, we, 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 and I'm sure most schools are very, very willing to enforce those values of respect and what it means to be um, a student at that particular school. 
mm. hopefully that filters into to other areas of their lives as well. But, Are you in a position though where you're having to create these conversations, create these structured responses on your own, or are there existing resources that you know you, you know, in terms of like talking about how to be a good ally or talking about how to uh, remain engaged with a peer who's had an accusation levelled against them, so that you're supporting them to change without alienating them? Are you guys kind of making that from scratch, or, or are there materials that have come from from the federal state government to help you do that? Um, so earlier in, in the program, you referred to the federal government's, um, or there was the famous milkshake ad, which is part of a much broader uh, curriculum mm. that they've developed at, at great cost. Um, there's the, the state government has had um, what, what they call their, their respectful relationships curriculum. Um, that's been around for, for a few years, in fact, and schools um, in, the, in the state system can sign up to that. Um, and I think Molino came out a few weeks ago and said um, that that all schools should should have it. Um, it, it. It just so happens that that, that that's that's got that is curriculum um, that is around respect, around unity, um, around consent at the right year levels. Um, so in in a way, um, there is um, that sort of you know generic response to this is how classes, how teachers um, should respond to these issues and this is what you can teach and um, here are the materials for it. Um, I suppose though it doesn't allow for the nuanced or you know perhaps even the higher risk types of conversations that you might be alluding to. Um, in that space there is actually very little support, there's very little resources available um, for, for teachers, for uh, leaders in schools who might have those conversations with students but at a base level um, there is and, and more presently there's been more updated curriculum in you know in, in Victoria around respectful relationships. I know this perhaps may be a bit hard to comment on um, but I'll say it anyway <laughs> um, but mm -hmm. I guess um, for my I know from my own education um, going to a religious school there's quite a different sort of take on um talking about um you know consent or sex or um you know gender or any of these kind of topics um you know it's probably kind of putting it into a very nice and delicate way i guess um but i guess what would i would really say is that there's there's quite a big contrast between kind of the things that are being prescribed by the government or by state schools and what um you know a lot of uh, religious schools will teach is there you know what kind of dialogue can teachers have across networks i wonder you know through teachers networks or you know trade unions and things like that to be able to talk about how some of those teachers might be able to have these same kind of conversations where they might be up against a different kind of um issue in, in terms of you know the kind of religious things that will be taught that sometimes contravene what might be wanting to be taught about some of these issues. Yeah, you, you raise something that's probably not discussed enough um, across the sectors. Having worked in all three sectors, I can tell you that the conversation about these sorts of topics is obviously clearly uh, very, very different. Um, you know, going from the Catholic system where there is no conversation about that sort of education unless you work in the health space and in, in which case it's, um, you know, quite a, a redacted version of, of things to, you know, the government or independent space where um, 
you know, of course, independent, you know, write their own curriculum and, you know, they sort of determine how things go. And then the department, uh, government schools sort of work in that space where things are somewhat more mandated. So there, there is no, um, from my experiences at least, um, across, you know, 14 years or so, there's been very little conversation between those sectors and between, um, you know, how we're educating, in particular, same-sex schools, um, how we're sort of navigating mm. those spaces around, uh, around relationships and gender and identity and all of those sorts of things. Very little conversation is happening between the sectors, which is, um, which is troubling, I suppose. It's a good um, chance to talk a bit of, you know, one of the criticisms of the, the government's recent release at the start of this year was that it was out of touch with what young people already talk amongst themselves about, you know, that using these broad euphemisms, you know, I think talking about the lack of sex education in the Catholic system, you know, there was a, you know, we know that the current federal leadership has a Pentecostal bent, you know, calling it the good society, I think was a fairly clear tip of the hat to that using these, you know, like milkshakes and tacos instead of sexual assault and, you know, oral sex or, you know, like having been a teenager, teenagers talk about these things. Like to, to say that they don't is kind of having your, your head in the ground. And I wonder if the two of you could reflect on, you know, it's not like these teenagers don't live in the same society we live in, the same society that Brittany Higgins lives in, the same society that Christian Porter lives in. Like we live in a sexist society. And I wonder if you, the two of you could reflect on how ready are these kids to change and how already inculcated in that society are they? You know, are you in a position to, do you feel like you, you can mould them and, you know, socially engineer better young people or... Or is the, the, the forces outside kind of already done their work and, and you're dealing with that kind of sexist disrespect from, from the outset, particularly from young men I, I'm interested in? Yeah, I think, look, we have a role to play in that area um, as educators, as do their families. Um, and so a lot of what we see coming through in our students and their behaviours and, you know, their respect um, in all areas a lot of that comes from their families um, and their parents and their values at home. But we certainly have that opportunity as educators to try and change that perspective, I suppose. Um, as Tim said earlier, we can be very clear on what we expect um, and allow within our own school community. And, you know, sometimes that does, it makes the change that's needed. Um, they're also hearing it from their peers. In, in our context, we have so many students who are wanting to be on board with this and support us in rolling out um, our consent education. And there's a really loud student voice now um, demanding change. And so between that and the messaging we're sending, um, we certainly have that, that option to make change. It's, it's not easy. Um, and there are certainly, as you said, male students who I guess are not as, as ready to make change or not as willing to see that change needs to happen. Um, and so the parents also have a role there in educating their, their children at home and instilling the values that are required in their home. Um, but we are in a really important area where we can start to make that change as well. Yeah, and look, I, I suppose for me, um, one of the most salient points that has come out of the last four or so months is, is the involvement of students. Um, you know, we have had... Um, you know, focus groups and ambassadors and leaders, you know, all coming forward and, and meeting with us and talking to us about 
what they think has to happen. So, and that's been from both boys and girls, which has been really heartening. Um, but the other thing, you know, that has, um, you know, surprised me, I suppose, not in the fact that it's come forward, but in, in the, the detail of it is just how, um, you know, how much we need to educate from an early age. So, you know, students in year 11 and 12 are telling us, you need to have more explicit conversations about what sex is, what pleasure is. You need to have more um, explicit conversations um, from year seven in year eight um, about, you know, those definitions and about um, what consent is, you know, we talk about consent very freely, but what are we actually consenting to and, and those sorts of things. So students have come forward um, in droves, male and female, um, and they've been very, very open with us about, you know, wanting earlier intervention, wanting earlier education um, from the word go. Um, and Nicole mentioned before, and stuff has, has to happen from primary school. Um, and I agree, and I think primary school, they, they do um, obviously cover sex education. I think it can often drop off in high school education. Um, and, you know, and, and that, that's understandable, I suppose, but, you know, that obviously now it needs to change. Um, so students are very ready and willing to, to engage in this area and they're ready and willing. And I think boys included um, are ready and willing to, to learn and educate themselves moving forward. Well, we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much to both of you, Nicole and Tim, for joining us and talking a bit about what's going on in the schools uh, in this year. It feels like a, you know, a historical time, a time of great change, and that's exciting. And obviously schools are a place where that change is happening, so it's really good to get some insights from you both. I appreciate it. Um, thanks Pleasure. for being on the show. Thanks for having us. And I think uh, anyone who has school-aged children living in Melbourne or Victoria at the moment is very, very grateful for all the work that teachers do and are doing. So special shout out to all the teachers. And although, you know, obviously a really difficult situation for teachers and schools to be dealing with, it is really heartening to hear that it's a time where people, young women in particular, are feeling confident to come forward and to advocate for themselves and for their friends. Well, thank you, James. See you next, uh, next episode. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.